It is critical you pay attention at this time. The following program is being broadcast to all fans of Nova and for the preservation of the Zendarian homeworld's culture. I am the world mind and I am turning control over to my human host. Welcome to this third episode of Xandar Radio. I'm Doug Smith, also known online as Nova64, and I've run the Nova Prime page at novaprimepage.com for 21 years and have been a Nova fan for 44. And while that sounds like an addiction meeting greeting, I have no plans to ever go Nova sober. If you'd like to share how you became a Nova fan, I'd love to hear it and share it in a future episode. Click on the voice message button on the Xandar Radio landing page and record your story. Now let's go to the Nova Newsroom for updates on upcoming news on the human rocket. The Nova Newsroom. Let's begin the news by taking a look at Nova-related titles scheduled to be released in November. The eighth issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, a team featuring Rich Rider Nova, is expected to arrive on November 4th. The second issue of the Champion series, which includes Sam Alexander Nova, has a release date scheduled for November 11th. Neither issue appears to be focused on the Novas, but they most likely will appear in some capacity. However, in our very near future, or very recent past, depending on when you're hearing this episode, Guardians of the Galaxy number 6 will be arriving in comic stores on September 2nd. This is a special issue focusing on Rich Rider Nova. With more on the issue, here's the series writer, Al Ewing. Hello, this is uh, Al Ewing, a writer of the Guardians of the Galaxy comic. And I wanted to drop a quick message about issue six of Guardians of the Galaxy out very soon. That's going to feature Nova, Richard Ryder, uh, very heavily. It's going to be a spotlight issue on him, uh, dealing with some of his recent traumas and uh, maybe a few a few pieces of his past as well. So um, if you're a big Nova fan, and if you're listening to this, I can only assume that you are, keep an eye out for that issue. And uh, if you're getting a physical copy of it, please wear a mask and keep your social distance. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Al. Again, that was Al Ewing on Nova and Guardians of the Galaxy number 6, which will be on sale September 2nd. Also arriving on September 2nd will be a variant cover to Miles Morales' Spider-Man number 18, featuring Sam Alexander by artist Ron Lim. The variant is part of Marvel's 81st birthday celebration. The Topps Company continues to be on a roll in releasing Nova cards in its Marvel Collect app. For those unfamiliar with Marvel Collect, these are digital-only cards, not physical cards, which are available in the free app. The company has recently released the Sam Alexander Nova card in Series 2 of the 2020 base set. There are a total of 10 cards in this set, featuring the same art, but with enough different border colors to make the emotional color spectrum in DC's Green Lantern titles jealous. The Food for Thought set features a red card and a blue card of Sam Alexander Nova. Sam is also part of the Reflection set with a blue card and a gold card. Rich Rider Nova appears on six cards in the Guardians of the Galaxy comic collection set, two featuring him as an individual and four with him as part of the team. 
And in the Tops Teams set, Sam Alexander Nova appears as a member of the New Warriors on the red and the blue card. And finally, Sam Alexander appears on three cards in the Inception set. I have to say that I'm really happy that digital cards are basically free, either through the coins you can earn in the app or by trading with others. Otherwise, I'd be going to the Sphinx for what he calls a high-interest loan just to keep up on them. For anyone interested, images of the items mentioned in this new segment can be found at NovaPrimePage.com. Fan Theories This is a segment I call Fan Theories. The premise of this segment is to try to fix continuity errors or speculate on drop storylines throughout the comic series. So the fan theory of this episode looks at the very first issue of The Man Called Nova. In that issue, the warlord Zor, from the planet Lufum, journeys to Xandar in order to destroy the planet and absorb its energies to help restore his world, which was destroyed by Galactus. However, following Xandar's destruction, Zor eventually finds his way to Earth to continue his destructive ways, but with Centurion Nova Prime Roman Day close behind. The question that comes to mind is, why journey all the way from the Andromeda Galaxy to the Milky Way Galaxy and Earth if your goal was simply to find worlds to restore your own? A galaxy seems to be big enough to hold plenty of worlds that could help you meet your quota without having to venture to another. I discussed this question with fellow Nova fan and comic book writer Brandon Seifert many years ago, and he had an absolutely brilliant answer. Zor wasn't just seeking planetary energy, he was seeking vengeance. Since it was Galactus who destroyed Lufum, that means his herald would have scouted out the planet before summoning the planet killer and his size 800 hat to Lufum. Galactus's herald at that time would most likely have been Airwalker. Airwalker had been a native Xandarian and a member of the Nova Corps named Gabriel Lan prior to his conversion to a herald. In Brandon's theory, Zor was able to discover Airwalker's planet of origin and targeted Xandar as retribution. The theory also nicely clears up why he went to Earth and New York City in particular. Airwalker's journey as a herald of Galactus had eventually taken him to Earth and the Big Apple, where he fought the Fantastic Four and later Thor. Zor had simply followed Gabriel Land's path seeking vengeance on the Herald, and that is why he ended on Earth. An excellent solution by Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. I'd like to encourage everyone to visit Brandon's site at brandoncypher.info. This episode is a little light on theoretical work, so I have added some trivia questions to the segment this month. The way this works is I will ask a series of trivia questions, with the final one hopefully being the most difficult. However, I won't reveal the answers until the end of the program. So here we go. Number one. What was the name and occupation of Richard Ryder's uncle who was murdered by the supervillain Photon? Number two. In the original Nova uniform, how long could the air supply in his helmet last? Number three. What was the name of Roman Day's wife? And that's it for this episode segment. I'd like to continue to invite anyone who might have their own theory on something 
or would like me to take a shot at it, to please use the message feature on the Xandar Radio landing page at anchor.fm slash Xandar radio to send it in. Or feel free to submit it by email. The address is xandarradio at gmail.com. Coming up is the Learn More in Studio 64 segment featuring an interview with writer Dan Abnett. Learn More in Studio 64. Welcome to the Learn More in Studio 64 segment. Today I'm happy to introduce writer Dan Abnett to the program. Dan has a long list of writing credits to his name, including the Annihilation Nova miniseries, along with the spectacular 2007 Nova series. He's taking some time out of his incredibly busy schedule to chat with me, and I'd like to thank him for his time today. Well, it's good to talk to you. How how are things over there? Uh, Not bad. Uh, Doing pretty well. Uh, Lockdown has been remarkably okay for all of us here. Uh, For us, it's really like business as usual because we're just sitting at home working, you know, just seeing slightly less of people in the outside world. When did you discover comics and what were your favorites growing up if, if it had, if you discovered them as a kid? I did discover them as a kid. I, um, uh, I read, when I was very young, I sort of read some British comics, which are very different creatures to American comic books. They're usually weekly and they were usually sort of, I don't know, war and adventure comics rather than uh, superheroes. Didn't have the same tradition of superheroes over here. So I read those things. I had, I had some early favorites and, and, and by, by the, late 70s obviously i was a huge fan of 2000 ad which was a bastion of of uh, sf comics over here which I, I now have written for for a very long time but uh, i had a friend when i was about eight or nine years old i changed schools i i, I liked drawing as a kid uh, my parents were artists and i i liked drawing and i we, i changed schools and i made friends with a kid in in, the, in my new class who was really good at drawing and he would draw um these incredibly dynamic images that i i, I had no idea where he was getting his inspiration and he read Marvel comics. Uh, he th- th- at that point they were being reprinted in weekly black and white anthologized form in the UK. So in a really strange, strange way. And he would read these. I'd never seen these before, but he would read these, and, and that had inspired his drawing. And and one fateful day, he uh, I was around his house, and he had a whole stack of comics. He had more comics than he knew what to do with. And his mother said why don't you give Dan some of your spare comics because you've got too many. And so I went home with this bundle of comics, which I have to this day, and I read those over and over and over again. It was my introduction to American superheroes, to Marvel comics, became a huge fan then. So growing up from that point, I read 2000 AD, British comics, and I also, wherever I possibly could, and at that point they were beginning to import some and do uh, British reprints and all that sort of stuff, just read comics, particularly Marvel. DC was much harder to get hold of, so Marvel was my thing. And I loved uh, I loved Iron Man and Daredevil and I loved the Avengers and and you know I had I had real favourites and some I also loved a lot of the um, the more obscure characters and this obviously plays in very much into what we're talking about today uh, in the in around about seventy seven again when Star Wars came out there was the Marvel Star Wars comic which was a Marvel comic in the UK but again in this in this weekly it was called Star Wars Weekly and it serialised the American star wars material in sort of eight or ten page sections and then every week the backup was something that the the uh british marvel editors in their infinite wisdom had decided had enough sci-fi content to make a good support feature for to uh, for star wars and that was where i discovered all sorts of odd things like star lord 
and the sword and the star and micronauts and rom and all sorts of different things they ran in the back because it had a science they were they were like cosmic sf and that's where my love of this stuff really came from was this this strange because a lot of those things let's let's face it and let's be fair about it were not massively successful in their own rights but they were used as this sort of backup almost filler material in the british comics and i fell in love with those characters uh, and 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 so when the time came to uh to work on Marvel Cosmic, I had this sort of in, intimate <laughs> childhood knowledge of these characters that I'd loved so much. Yeah, I, I always find it fascinating how people get introduced to comics and characters because it's, you know, comics are typically a very individual experience. So yeah. it's, it's always, always interesting to see how people uh, are introduced to those sort of things. Yeah, and it became my hobby at the time as well, because like I said, I, my, as a kid growing up, my, my favourite things were reading books and comics, read voraciously. I loved writing stories and I loved drawing pictures. Those were, the, those were my three big things that I did as a kid. And once I discovered American Marvel uh, comics, uh, uh, I, I realised that I could do two of my favourite things at the same time. So I wrote and drew my own comics for, for many years, amateurish, ridiculous teenage things, but I, that's what I did. And I think that gave me a great grounding in, in thinking about comics, thinking about um, storytelling and everything like that. So, it's, so the, the discovery of comics gave me a, a, a new hobby that combined two previous ones. Oh, that's great. That's that's like um, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein and, and Roy yeah. Thomas. They, they all have that same experience on how they got into comics. And uh, it seems to be something they carried carried forward as a career yeah, yeah absolutely and i i i i for the longest time thought i would pursue art not necessarily in comics but art was one of my strongest subjects at school and i thought i'd go to art college like i said my parents were artists and art teachers and so i was like following on in that tradition and it was only when i was about 15 or 16 that i i had a, a really good uh, english teacher uh who pointed out to me that i was very good at the subject and maybe wanted to think about doing that at university and it sort of changed changed the way I thought about what what I could do, and and I and I sort of followed his advice and did that instead. And and um, and by that stage, I think I was at that point really just writing, because I although I could draw adequately, I don't, I don't know if I was ever going to be a great artist, but I basically couldn't draw my own comics fast enough to tell stories that I wanted to tell. So the sort of art slowly began to fall away, and it became a thing about writing instead. And and you had mentioned going to university. As I understand it, you you attended St. Edmund Hall at the University of Oxford. Uh, yes. What kind of student were you? Uh, I think I was a pretty good one. I was, uh, uh, I, again, that was part of that, that whole process. This, 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 uh, this very inspirational English teacher that I had, as I said, suggested to me that I might want to read English at university rather than study art at art school just as an alternative he wasn't trying to persuade me he said here is something you haven't thought of and it was such a shock I said to him well tell me about doing that because I've never ever in my life thought about doing that and he encouraged me and he sort of um sort of coached me to do that he thought I had it in me and then to my surprise he said not only do I think you should read uh, English at university I want to put you in for the Oxbridge exam and see if I can get you into Oxford or Cambridge because I think you're that good and I and, I, and again absolutely no idea that this was a possible thing that I could do so because I basically trusted him and I thought it was a really interesting thing to do. I, I sat the exam and I passed it and I won a place at Oxford 
Uh, and I, I, I personally chose Sir Edmund Hall. It just that there are many colleges within Oxford, and that was the one that appealed to me. Uh, and I went there and I read English language and literature. So I studied English from, uh, well, basically from Anglo-Saxon onwards. And it was a very traditional course. And I, I, I loved it. I loved it because it was great and it was an extraordinary experience. But I also loved it because I had, until sort of a few months before, no idea that's where I was going to, what I was going to do and where I was going to go. Uh, and that was a, so it was a huge adventure. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, if, if you've ever seen uh, Oxford and Oxford University portrayed so many times in films and television, if nothing else, Inspector Morse, but, you know, you know anything about it. It is an extraordinary place full of extraordinary things. So uh, uh, it, was a, it was a truly a sort of life-altering experience that I'm incredibly grateful for. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. It's, yeah, like you say, the only exposure I've had to it is what you see in the movies and such. And Yes. And that must have been something. And so as you ventured into your comic or your writing career, did you set out specifically to to go into comics or was it just writing in general and comics was one avenue for you among others? Yeah, I th- yes. It, well, again, it's happenstance. And um, obviously the story I've told you so far, uh, the, 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 there's these pivotal moments that were completely unexpected. The, 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 my, my friend, nine years old, giving me Marvel comics and making me discovering American comics, which was, was a clearly a big turning point for everything. My English teacher telling me that maybe I should investigate reading English at university, hadn't thought of that. That, that took me off in a direction. And whilst I was at uh, university with an English, getting an English degree, which is great, but what do you do with an English degree, an arts degree? And I was thinking, well, I will teach. My parents were teachers. That's a very honourable thing to do. That's what I expected to do. But I did have a huge hankering to write. I really, really did. And I thought, well, I will, whatever I end up doing professionally, I will try and be a writer at the same time. So that was sort of my ambition. And whilst I was at Oxford, uh, I, I, you, for several years, I edited the uh, college magazine uh, and drew a lot of cartoons for it because I had some artistic abilities. So cartoons, little comic strips and, and other things, just to illustrate this thing. And, um, and because I had a, quite a graphic style, because it had come from drawing comics for years and years and years, this was noted. And, a, and, and a fr- again, a friend of mine at college, when we were getting to the end and we were all deciding what we were going to do and what, we, what jobs we were going to apply for, he said to me, well, you should get a job in comics because you love comics and you're good at it and you're interested in it. And, and, and I, I remember saying the immortal words, is that something you can do? Because it never occurred to me there was a comics industry that one could have join and be part of. So, so leaving, graduating in the, in the long summer after my final year, I sort of was writing off job applications and, and just investigating things I could do. And I wrote a letter to Marvel's UK branch, uh, which was in London at the time. And I really just wrote a letter saying, can you tell me more about what it's like to work in comics? You know, it, it wasn't a job application by any stretch of the imagination. It was just a, it was just reaching out thinking maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get, a, get to visit the office and find out a bit more about it. And uh, they sent me a lovely letter back saying, yeah, by all means, come on in and the date and time and everything like that. So I so I got on the train to London and I went to London. And what I didn't know was that uh, they had at the time been advertising for editorial trainees and they thought I was applying to the, for a job. So I arrived that day to find a room full of other candidates all waiting for their interviews and went, oh, OK, and did a rapid rethink. And I, I basically <laughs> went in and had an interview and, I, I, and I, I landed one of the jobs that was going. I, 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 um, I acquitted myself well on the spot and I got one of the editorial jobs. So I ended up working at Marvel UK. I was there for two or three years as an editorial trainee. I started absolutely from the bottom in the colour separation department and then, I, then as an assistant editor and a junior person and eventually started editing stuff as well. 
and uh, uh, I sort of learned the industry from the inside. And I was essentially my first proper job there was as the assistant editor to Richard Starkings, who was the senior editor at the oh. time. Uh, so I've known him for a long, long time. Assistant editor Richard Starkings working on things like Ghostbusters because everything they did then was um, licensed. So we worked on Transformers and Thundercats and Galaxy Rangers and Ghostbusters and Care Bears and everything else. Um, and I was part of that community. There were other people there at the same time as me. Uh, Simon Furman was an editor, and he, he, he's like one of the most famous Transformers writers in the world. And, and loads and loads of young artists who nobody had ever heard of were coming in and doing freelance jobs for us, which included people like Brian Hitch and Dougie Braithwaite oh. and, uh, and uh, Liam Sharp and Kev Hopgood. And, uh, goodness, the list is extraordinary. The talent that was coming in just essentially off the streets, but young, young artists looking for work, and most of them landing their first work there. And by the time I reached the end of my stay there as an editor, I was I was headhunted briefly for another job at another comic company and then decided that it was time to go freelance and concentrate on my writing. But by the end of that time I was at Marvel, we had just begun to originate American-style comic books on top of the licensed stuff we did because it was something we all wanted to do. And that led to things like Knights of Pendragon and uh, Death's Head and uh, some of the other things I did very early in my career. Uh, working with people, ironically, like, like Brian Hitch, like Liam Sharp, Carlos Pacheco, um, all of whom doing their first sort of uh, first work in the business, and one of the things they did editorially was um, uh, let me say the pay was terrible. I mean, it was really, really terrible pay, and there was no overtime. So the only way you could boost your income was to do work freelance. So a lot of people specialised in colouring or lettering. They would literally take home work home with them. Richard Starkings, as we know, is a you know one of the greatest letterers in the world. And I remember getting to the end of the day working on Ghostbusters, and he would stay on after work for several hours using the facilities at Marvel. And I remember him sitting there lettering The Killing Joke, which is his latest job. I think. <laughs> wow. And so I did, I, I did some freelance colouring, which I wasn't terribly good at. That was my first thing. But one of the things they encouraged us to do was to write stories. They didn't want, they didn't want the editors writing all the stories, but they wanted the editors to have written some stories so that we understood how stories work so we could better edit the freelancers that we were employing. And that's how I started out. I think my first thing was on, first story I ever wrote was a five-page story for Action Force, which was the British G.I. Joe, which was drawn by Brian Hitch. I did it on spec. And then I wrote loads of Ghostbusters. So for about two years, I was Egon Spengler. I wrote the Spengler Spirit Guide in Ghostbusters. And I did loads of oh. things like that. I wrote, so you just name, a, name a, a, a sort of late 80s license, and I have written it. And <laughs> writing those licenses was an incredibly useful thing to do because, because you had to work to a very careful sort of recipe. You needed the approval of the license holders. If you got the stories wrong writing Care Bears or Thomas the Tank Engine or Galaxy Rangers or whatever – the story would get sent back and you'd have to do it over. So I learned very, very quickly to, to understand a property and write the best story I could for that property. And it was an invaluable experience. And I, I loved doing it. It was, it was a great, fun thing to do. And that, I think, stood me in an incredibly good step when I, where I sort of graduated once I'd gone freelance and was writing sort of, they weren't create your own, but writing for Marvel and later for DC and for Dark Horse and everybody like that. And 2000 AD come to that, that these were... These were nevertheless properties. They were licenses. You know, Iron Man or the Punisher was a license, and you had to understand that and do something, no matter how creative and imaginative, something that still fitted that and didn't break it. Uh, so I think I had this sort of invaluable training. So after about three or four years of editing and 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 doing doing some freelance writing as my kind of uh, night job, my second job, I decided that, 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 that I liked writing more than editing, and I took the enormously risky plunge of just quitting my job and going freelance and seeing if I could support myself just as a writer. And 
um, touch wood, that worked, and I've been doing it ever since. I've been doing it for for oh God, getting on for thirty years now. That's that's how I took the plunge, and I sort of uh, did that. You know, you had mentioned that a lot of the work that you did was licensed characters for uh, American comics. Yeah. As a as a British writer, uh, when you're writing an American based characters, or or for any country for that matter. Yeah. Do you research that country's culture first or have any kind of mindset change that you have to do? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I have to confess that early on, when, when, you, when you are in your uh, early 20s and breaking into this, that you think you're immortal and you can do anything, that, that confidence just carries you along for a long way. So I confess that in the early days, I probably did absolutely zero research on anything because I was just immensely oversatisfied with my own ability to perform these things. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, writing an American comic, apart from the fact that, you know, there are technical things, writing a script for an American publisher, you need to adopt American spelling and things like that. That generally speaking, I had grown up watching as much American import television and reading American comics as, as possible. Therefore, I didn't really need a, a 101 introduction into American culture. Um, as time has gone on, I find that these days, and for the last 15 plus years, I do more and more research on everything I do, everything I do. And I'm not just talking about continuity research. If I'm asked by, say, Marvel or DC to write a character that I haven't written before, I'll go and do my due diligence of, of, of researching that character and understanding how it works and looking at the classic moments in that character's written history, you know, published history. But also researching, well, anything, anything. Even if I'm writing science fiction or fantasy or the most out-of-this-world thing, I try and find, find real-world research that I can look at so I can understand for instance the vernacular of, of, uh, of, of somebody and reproduce it writing American comics for instance or I can understand how a machine works or, or, or have a rough grasp of whatever it is I, I always try and do that and I find that because of so much of what I do even in the superhero realm as, as, as you know because I'm a sort of if I'm famous for anything it's cosmic comics which to me is science fiction with superheroes it's not superheroes with a bit of science fiction they're I, they are the most, I write in the most fantastical universes, basically. And there is an enormously liberating excitement about the sheer scale and spectacle of, of science fiction or fantasy. At the same time, it can be too otherworldly. And I think the most successful SF in movies and comics is the stuff that has, is grounded in a way that, that, that makes you, the reader or the viewer, identify with it and understand it. So you, you, can, you can appreciate how wonderful it is because you recognize something in it. And so I've always tried to do that in, in terms of finding some kind of real world authenticity to something that I can base it on. So so there are things things in science fiction that you can't research because they don't exist, funnily enough. But I will always search for what I would consider to be the closest real world analogue to that thing and research that and then sort of shift that shift what I've learned sideways into a sci fi setting. So there's, I'm always taking things. I, wherever I go, I've got a notebook with me, and I will note down all sorts of things all the time, watching television, reading a book, sitting on a train, whatever. Things, I just hear and see things, and I go, that's useful. I don't even know how it's going to be useful, but something something said or a name or a phrase, it goes in the book because so, I know somewhere sooner or later that's going to be helpful in, in making something feel more believable, and I, that's what I've always tried to do a good job of. Yeah, and it really does show it in your work. Uh, one of the things that I think is paramount to a science fiction success is is the human relatability. Uh, if yeah. it's the concepts can be 
can be mind blowing as long as a person can relate to it on some level. And I think that's one of the things about Nova is he is just, he's the average guy and he's thrown into these fantastic scenarios and situations, but you really, you really feel for the character you, because he's just, he's one of us. Uh, oh, absolutely is the case. And Nova's a great example of that. There, there are others. I mean, I think Star-Lord is another, but one of those things where it's it, where what anchors you to reality in a way that you can respond to those fantastical stories is the character in itself. And Rich Rider is, is, is I wouldn't say he's every man, but he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's an ordinary guy that we understand, we understand where he's coming from. And that is the great anchor point. So that relatability in Nova and other things that I wrote cosmically for Marvel and for DC and for other people I've written cosmic stuff for always to me hinges on those very simple things. You, you, you think about having exciting heroes. Well, that's great. But within that, there's got to be the character. There's got to be the relatable human character, or if it's not a human character, then some relatable personality that you can at least identify with. So that's character first and foremost. Everything is character driven. The other thing about science fiction stuff, it's always about scale. It's always about enormous fantastical things, you know, spaceships or, vast tracts of space or backgrounds that are just stars and all those kind of things. And that is fantastic because it creates the the atmosphere, if you like, to use a, a poor word, the atmosphere of, of big space-born stories. But at the same time, can be very kind of uh, anonymous and dislocating. It can be, it can, it can feel very cold. And writing, writing a character like, say, Spider-Man or, or, or Captain America or Iron Man based on Earth, um, you've got a recognizable earth to relate to and that that grounds readers i think in 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 understanding you know why something was extraordinary or impressive because it's a real world with real people in it when you're writing cosmic you very seldom get that so not only was it a matter with nova and and the other stuff of of, of finding a relatable character to, to anchor it around uh it was a matter of trying to build scenery as it were a location that people, even if it took them a moment to understand it, they could relate to, which is why so much of Nova and later on Guardians of the Galaxy, there was a lot of time spent creating and establishing all the different empires and factions and home worlds, you know, the Shi'ar and the Kree and the, the Skrull, sort of bringing together everything that had been created for the Marvel over the years and sort of, in a way, mapping and giving a geography to that universe so that it wasn't just black with stars. You know what I mean? It had It had a sense of... If you go that way, you'll encounter that. If you go that way, you'll encounter that, which again makes it relatable. And, and finally, with, with Nova, obviously, the reason that I put so much effort into creating the world mind as a companion was, was to give him a dialogue rather than a monologue. It would be too, I think, too samey just to have him telling the reader what he's thinking and feeling and, and what he's experiencing to actually be able to discuss those things with a confidant who happened to be in, inside his head was was really good and incredibly useful for storytelling because obviously the world mind is a direct source of exposition literally he's mm-hmm. a person who tells you information he's your sat nav he's your siri or whatever like that so that again made the storytelling much more um lean and and concise because the world mind could just tell you something and you didn't have to go through pages finding that out because he could tell it to you and then we could get on with the story so there were there were sort of my love of SF was so much and my love of Cosmic was so much, but I was aware right from the get-go with Nova, there were certain things we had to do to make that work for the reader. Otherwise, the reader was just going to go, yeah, this is dull, I don't get it. Yep. Speaking of Nova, a lot of people remember your remember your uh, introduction to Nova through the uh, Annihilation Nova miniseries. Sure. But a lot of them don't know that a few years before that, 
uh, you and Andy Lanning and Chris Batista had pitched a Nova proposal. Uh, Chris had, for the fan, one of the fanzines I had done, Chris had recollected that a lot of the foundations that were in that had elements that transferred over to annihilation, like the intergalactic war, and mostly the the foundation of the new world mind was in there. And I like how Chris Batista called them the Nova skins for the uniforms. Yeah. Is that some, are those elements that came in later for Annihilation? Uh, is that something you discussed with Keith Giffen or, or was that just coincidence? Uh, it was a little bit of both actually, for various different reasons, most of which escaped my memory now I'm afraid, but it didn't get off the ground, possibly because the idea of a major cosmic relaunch with Annihilation was on the horizon. They didn't want to sort of muddy the waters. But when Keith, who, by the way, I admire immensely, I, I think he's an incredible talent uh, and his run on Legion of Superheroes with DC is one of my favourite things of all. And ironically, something else that I followed on to with, uh, uh, with the run on Legion of Superheroes. But when he, he sort of fronted up Annihilation and, and the, the editor, Andy, the editor, we pitched the original Nova series to, it came back and said, we'd like you to do this Nova book. It, it was it was really, it wasn't less a case of, of, of inheriting stuff we pitched before, but it was a case of saying, well, we've got ideas and seeing how well they fitted with what Keith had in mind. So it was like sort of show and tell. We've got these ideas. Some, some of them made the cut, some of them didn't. And obviously some of them had to be altered in order to suit the Annihilation event and make it work properly. And then some of them dripped in later on in, in various various ways once the, the ongoing book was was there. But it was it was uh, it was sort of remarkably easy. I, Keith had sort of just sort of uh, carved out a section that the Nova story could could. It was almost it was almost. I'm being ironic, but it was almost a case of saying, well, the Nova story starts here because this will have just happened, uh, and you can tell what it, you can do whatever you want as long as you put him here at the end of the four issues, and then I'll pick it up again. And it was it was the incredibly sort of generous and an open collaboration from his point of view, and sort of. We just got to work trying to tell the best story we could. Again, like I said, like like writing Care Bears or Thomas Tank Engine, the best story we could using the ingredients that we had to fit into that gap. Uh, obviously, the art was, I think, amazing, and and the event worked really, really well. And that that really was the beginning of that sort of the sort of cosmic renaissance at Marvel because because I think Marvel sort of editor editorial had sort of let Andy do it, and they said, well, you know, have a go if you think it's going to work, but they hadn't really expected it to, to find a big audience um, and all the way through the entire the entire time I was on a cosmic book at Marvel Nova and Guardians and everything like that in, in the most kindly and affectionate way people like Joe Casado goes I just don't get it I don't get cosmic I don't understand why there is a readership for this I don't understand what kick you get out of doing it and they weren't insulting they just it was like that's not the kind of superheroes they were interested in mm-hmm. but they kind of let me get on with it and that was enormously liberating because if I'd been writing, say, Spider-Man or Thor or Daredevil or whatever, uh, one of those sort of really marquee characters, I think I'd have been very limited in what I could do because because the, there's a, they're high profile and you can't mess with them. You know, you kind of got to put them back where you found them. And although I was very respectful of the cosmic toys, wasn't going out of my way to deliberately break anything or, or sort of, you know, sort of just take things and ruin them completely so no one else could write them. They were, by their very nature, when, when I first came to them, particularly on Guardians, these were fourth or fifth tier 
D-list Marvel characters that had not, for one reason or another, ever properly worked, even though I was very fond fond of them. And they they were sort of sitting at the bottom of the toy box and sort of nobody cared what I did. Uh, and therefore, there was an opportunity to, to tell, I think, some really compelling story li- lines that, that had unexpected things going on in them. The sort of things I couldn't have told if I'd been writing a sort of a more valuable property. Yeah, I was I was curious about that. Uh, it seems like you made such a giant leap forward with the character. As you were mentioning, with the different tiered characters, that had to be so liberating to make those kind of changes with you know kind of coming under the radar so to speak since it wasn't you didn't have so many eyes looking at it saying you can't do that you can't do this Uh, were there any changes that you wanted to make that marvel finally said okay that that might go a little too far i'm trying to think i can't think of many to be perfectly honest and i'd always loved nova and i thought nova had enormous potential in, in in him and I was aware, I very much respect and love the original, earlier runs of, of, of Nova, the original run and, and, and things that were done with him before I, I got my grubby hands on him. Um, but the, uh, it seemed to me that there were, there, were, there, was, there were always things that sort of slightly snagged the reader's attention, that he, he'd sort of almost been set up as a kind of um, a latter-day sort of Spider-Man type, but had never quite won the affection of the readers before uh, in the same way that Spider-Man had. So one of the things I did deliberately with Nova in, in that in certainly in the beginning of his ongoing series, uh, and certainly this applies also to other other of the cosmic characters that, that I was playing around with, was to sort of try and identify what it was about them the character in, in a, from the point of view of a readership, which had never quite worked, to sort of identify what it was and then actually make that part of the story. So with with Nova's, in Nova's case particularly, it was the fact that he had, for better or for worse, always been considered to be a sort of B-list, C-list hero. He'd never hit the big, big time. He was never considered to be one of the major Marvel heroes. He was just one of the other guys who showed up when there was a big event. You know, he was part of teams, that kind of stuff. He was, he was a minor character. So I deliberately incorporated that mentality of, of the way that readers probably thought about it. It's like, oh, I want to read the next Spider-Man, but oh, there's Nova out as well. Shall I read that? You know, uh, incorporate that mentality into Rich Rider's psychology himself. So he considered himself to be a B or C list hero, that he wasn't a major hero of the earth. He wasn't a defender on the power of the Avengers or anything like that. So in other words, give him the insecurities that the character as a license, as a property had, and then see him overcome them. And I think that was probably the point at which, although the, the original miniseries was really important, I think it was those first few issues of the ongoing series which which sort of really shifted the way the readership thought about Nova. And that was him returning to Earth as this major cosmic defender with, with serious levels of power and encountering characters like Iron Man and them being impressed with him and, and them literally saying, oh my, you're Nova, but you're not the Nova I remember. And mm-hmm. Rich himself realizing that he had changed and realizing that essentially he'd graduated he'd gone up a level and suddenly was a character that people were taking seriously and i think that was enormously helpful in a sort of subliminal way to the readers they're going oh this isn't this isn't a minor character anymore this is an important story because look important people in the marvel universe are now taking 
over seriously. And that was a very deliberate technique on my behalf in trying to write the character and trying to reposition his credibility in the Marvel Universe. And and ironically, just, just for the record, I did, or I tried to do exactly the same thing when I wrote Aquaman for DC because Aquaman had the same kind of public appraisal that he was he was not quite as cool as the Batman and Superman and the other members of the Justice League. He was the he was the fish guy. And I did the same thing there when made uh, Arthur Curry sort of aware of the fact that people didn't really understand him and didn't think he was a proper hero. And it, for both of them, I think it really, really worked because it allows them to to grow and and to establish themselves and to and to prove themselves without actually having to change the character very much. They're still the same characters. They don't have to suddenly do something dramatically, dynamically different. They just have to have the right mindset that they are of the uh, of a, a sort of an acceptable level. Yeah, it's that's actually a really fascinating look at it. In, in that, basically, I guess metafictional way, Rich's yep. own Rich's own insecurities. You know, he's trip basically tripping over his own feet reflects that the the readers weren't seeing him as a major hero because he didn't see himself that way absolutely yes his insecurities were were a deliberate mirror of as it were the book's insecurities that it wasn't a major major title that was going to go out there alongside the you know the big guns and and by playing on that strength i think we 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 kind of attracted more readers and we made people much more sympathetic to Nova and actually then more impressed by Nova as a character because they're going actually he's really cool look he's really cool why aren't people taking him seriously so it was uh, it, it was it was it was cheap psychology but I'm glad it worked yeah and and like you had mentioned Iron Man I think a lot of Nova fans when Rich did come back to earth and he had those interactions with Tony Stark that seeing seeing a major player like Tony Stark respecting Rich Ryder, and then in a sense, Rich Ryder, that giving him a sense of legitimacy in his yeah. own mind that I think it, it becomes cyclic. The readers are going, hey, Iron Man thinks he's cool. I think he's cool too. And, and I yeah, think- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's, that's, that's sort of what I was trying to do at the very least. Speaking of Iron Man, that took place with Nova's meeting with Tony during the Civil War crossover. Rich, especially in, I think, early on in the Nova series, was involved with a lot of the crossovers, the Civil War, Secret Invasion. Did the crossovers harm or help your writing on the series, or was it just something you took in stride and and just made the best of it? I think, I think, Probably they were just things that I took in my stride because it it is foolish I think to be writing a comic for a for a major publisher and not participate in in a big event and those events are sort of all consuming and they and they actually are great fun to to participate in and and of course Nova himself had got his launchpad uh, out of a crossover event uh, Annihilation and indeed the Guardians then got their launch out of the second one Annihilation Conquest so there there was a there was a events were sort of a, a regular thing that we participated in quite quite gleefully because they were just fun and that they got an opportunity to do various things sometimes they were they were a hindrance because you had to sort of foreshorten or halt a story that you were writing in order to make room for a, a crossover but when they worked 
I think I, I think particularly in the hindsight that they were enormously beneficial to the way the story worked because as I say that that uh, the Civil War gave an opportunity for Nova to to interact in in a really fundamental way with the universe because because of his new warriors connection and because of his meeting with Iron Man so that was really I think really played into the, the hands of the story in order making Nova's involvement not just because it was going on but because he had a part to play in it and that was great and similarly I'm always very look back very fondly on the secret invasion guardians story because that wasn't i think if you're going to do something like that if you're going to do, if you're going to participate in the crossover the, the, the best thing the best result you can get is if you can find a way of telling a story that relates to the crossover but then extends your own story internally your nova series as a whole introduced so many wonderful you know characters and concepts that i the right there are writers today still using it after all these years, whether it's comics or even in the movies, you saw Nowhere yeah. and Cosmo in the Guardians movies. Those two, Nowhere and, and Cosmo, first appeared over in Nova 8. The idea of a, a severed celestial head being a, a research station at the end of the universe, that was just absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> and, and I'll say, you know, Cosmo... He is really just one of my favorite characters to ever come out of uh, fiction, let alone comics. You know, the the idea of a, a telepathic spacesuit-wearing dog from the Soviet Union on a severed celestial head, I, I just, I have always wondered how you came up with that and uh, had you developed his backstory. Well, uh, I'd love to tell you there was some extraordinarily clever backstory to both of those story elements because I am very fond of them both. And, and the very fact that they've been carried over into the movies, I think, is, is, is telling them. They're, they're at least memorable. But I think the, the bottom line with, the, with Nowhere, the Severed Celestial Head, was simply was, it was like a, just a ridiculous SF idea because it was cool and strange and, and impactful immediately and suggested, without saying so, a whole backstory that would make readers go, but how, why, why, why has this happened? Yep. <laughs> who, who decapitates the Celestial? And I think that was it. I, I, there are there were many backstories that were invented over the time and that, that, that we may or may not have ever got around to telling, but they sort of didn't matter as much as as the very fact of it. I think I think a lot of a lot of great SF and uh, and 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 this is true actually of things like fantasy and horror as well. It's as much about what you don't say as what you do. You can put something in. I think Star Wars is particularly good at this. There's, there's, you know, there's a strong storyline running through the early Star Wars movies, but there's loads of other stuff that get mentioned, like the early mention of the Clone Wars. I know that now they later went on to explain what they were, but at the time it was a one-liner that 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 even though you didn't understand the detail, told you so much and suggested magnificently a history and a context that it was exciting, and you sort of didn't need to know any more than that and i think the same was certainly sort of true of of, of nowhere it was like we're, we're gonna put this in the comic and and let people's imaginations run riot because because that's that's a good thing to do and as far as cosmos concerned i also am incredibly fond of that character and i there was no imaginative origin process for creating that character at all i, I sat down one day i was writing the script I needed to put in a kind of character that he encountered who would sort of be his guide and the person he met in this environment. And just the Cosmo just like 
appeared to me, as it were, fully formed. And I went, that's a cool idea. I'll do that. <laughs> and I did. And I had no idea where that was going to go. I mean, obviously, there were... I, we did, I did fill in some of the gaps. In my head, at least, I worked out some of the backstory that I thought, when the time comes, if the time ever comes, these are the things that, that we might reveal about him. But again, like the Celestial Head, it, it kind of... It kind of, without answering all the questions, it kind of suggested exactly what it was. It was clearly a dog, and it was clearly wearing a Soviet <laughs> Union spacesuit. So it was clearly one of the dogs the Soviet Union had sent into space. And it had been out there a long time, and it hadn't died, and it was now telepathic and sentient. So something must have happened. It must have had its own sort of Stanley Kubrick moment. Yeah. And that, that, <laughs> that, to me, was entirely sufficient to make it a cool and interesting character. So sometimes it's about... When you're using something like the world might to completely explain something because it's story relevant, you want to download all that information because it's expositional and you need it for the story to work. But sometimes withholding that information and saying, yeah, it's a severed celestial head. What are you going to do about it? I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> is, is a much, much better way because it allows, it gives your imagination as a reader, I think, room to breathe and room to invent stuff. And that was something I think I learned from the very earliest days, going back to the anecdote I told you earlier on when I was nine years old and reading reading Marvel comics for the first time, the comics that my friend gave me that day not only were weekly black and white reprints with four or five stories in it. So you'd have a comic that would have five pages of the Avengers, five pages of the Hulk, five pages of Daredevil, five pages of Fantastic Four or whatever. So they weren't even complete American issues. They had been chopped about and serialized into these formats. So And, and, I, and he didn't give me a complete run of anything. OK, so this pile of comics had the beginnings of some stories and the ends of some stories and the middles of some. And in very, very few instances did I have a complete bit of a story. And in many instances, I didn't even know who half the characters were because I'd never read them before. I hadn't read, you know, I was just dipping into, I don't know, the FF or whatever for the first time. But the important thing was that my imagination went crazy. And I think, and I don't mean this in a concrete way, but I think I filled in all those gaps as a kid. I, I worked out what the end of that story was going to be and what the middle was going to be and what the missing beginning might have been and who these people were. My imagination played around with it. it. It literally filled up the gaps that had been provided by that very strange way of being introduced to comics. And I think that's something that a lot of creators can do and do do when they're actually writing uh, and drawing and creating comics and, and films that they give you a lot of stuff. They give you the stuff you need to know. They give you the stuff maybe that you, is flavorful and interesting at the same time they give you hints of stuff to 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 allow you a personal imaginative space as a as a reader or as a viewer to fill in for yourself because it doesn't need to be answered and probably whatever's in your head as an answer whatever you come up with is far better than anything we could ever deliver as a, a definitive answer to those things and one of the um segments of the podcast is called fan theories. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's where, like you were talking about, sometimes in our heads as readers, we, we try to fill in continuity gaps and, and backstories and things. One, since I, I'm talking to you, I would wanted, always wanted to ask you about the return of Supernova. There were things that kind of tumble in my head is that he was the, perhaps he was the cancer verse version of Supernova since he had the red eyes. And then the mm -hmm. other, the other was that perhaps he was the original Supernova uh, who had come out of the time stream because 
early on, he had been chasing Nebula through the time stream. And since we're dealing with the time stream, he could really just pop out anywhere. I didn't know if perhaps that was it, or if maybe he was one of the world mind brain patterns that had gotten purged after your storyline with Ego. Sure. And that maybe he found Malik Tarsal. Do you recall what the plans were for him? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I think all of those theories are entirely valid and much better than anything that we would have come up with. Uh, I, I would tend to lean away from the idea that he was cancerverse connected because that obviously went in a different direction. To be honest, there are, well, there are two answers there. I, th I think the possibility that he was the original supernova is fairly strong. I think the possibility that he was perhaps going to be part of an attempt to recreate the Nova Corps sort of from scratch, almost as if the, the, the powers that be had decided that what Rich Ryder had done was sort of an experiment gone wrong and, and it hadn't worked. And so that there was, they were privately sort of doing a, a sort of black books off the record new version of the Nova Corps that was intended to replace it. And this would be much more hard line. And that's what, what Supernova mm. was was a representative part of, which is, again, particularly interesting. The The ultimate answer, though, and this is going to sound like a cop-out, so I apologise, but the ultimate answer, though, is I do not know, not because I've forgotten, but because one of the things that I've always done in comics and, and with Nova and, and um, Guardians, it was no exception, is that occasionally I would just put in something because it was interesting and cool, and then as the story progressed, work out what I was what the best thing to do with that story was. So it's a matter of sort of almost like scattering plot elements in your wake so that, let's say you're in the middle of a six-part story and you just throw something in in the middle of it. The people go, oh, that's interesting. What's that? Where's that going? And you don't come back to it and then you do the next story. And at that point, you need another story. You need the next story arc. And you can reach back and go, right, I'm going to pick up on that little thing that I put in six or seven issues ago and going to run with that because I've had time to think about it and I've had thought of a brilliant way now to deploy that. And what that does quite frankly, and I'm showing you how the sausages are made. Now, this is, this is, behind the, this is in, inside the writer's studio. Stuff. What that does is it makes the writers look clever because it makes it look like we've been planning these things very carefully for years and years and years. And it's finally time for this storyline to break and we've been seeding it in for ladies. That's the effect. Again, that's part of the deliberate effect to make the reading experience better. But in, in truth, it's just a case of, of sort of sowing seeds as you go along, not knowing what they're going to grow into when they sprout, but putting them into the book so that there are lots of things you can double back to if you reach a point where you're going, oh my God, I don't know what to do for the next story. Oh, wait a minute, didn't we say, didn't we, we glimpse Supernova a few issues? Oh, okay, well, you know what I mean? So, so the ultimate answer is that I had not decided what supernova was going to be and what his story was going to be other than of course that he was going to be at the very least a threat to or a, in conflict with rich but i seeded him in there because it meant that then it, when we got to that story it wouldn't just come out of nowhere it was just no pun intended it was just going to be a <laughs> it was just going to be a thing that we were going oh that's lurking in the background and and, and and in comics with every writer in comics is doing that all the time whether they wish to admit it or not and and it's part of the organic growth of an ongoing title so ultimately, Supernova really was, as it were, a seed that had not yet sprouted and grown into something. And it was waiting there to be revisited. And the opportunity did not arise. So we never found out. But, it, but as I said with the other things, it's the sort of thing where your imagination can revisit it in a way that is probably much more satisfying and productive than, than anything I could have uh, come up with. 
as you were talking about the, plotting the plotting the seeds that some you know unfortunately don't get to be visited during a run. One thing you did get to do was you get to really end Rich's story, or at least conclude your the stories you had planned with Thanos' uh, imperative. Were you were you really happy with how that ended with him and Star Lord with the Butch and Sundance send off? And I ha- yeah yeah I have to, I have to say I I really really was. A number of things were going on at the time. Uh, wh- one of which was that generally speaking, Marvel like DC likes to move its creative teams around once in a while. If they've been on something for a long time, they go right. It's about time we got a fresh team on there to do that. Also, thanks to the Guardians movie and, and the, the Marvel movies generally. Some of these things were becoming hot properties, and there were there were very big names. Let's put it that way, asking to to get their hands on certain things, uh, and so it, it filtered down to me that 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 you know in the fairly near future I was going to be off the cosmic stuff that I was writing, and that they would be handed on to other people. And thank you very much. And it was time to do something else, which is fine because that's the life of a freelance writer, and that's what that's what you do. And and you know I went on to do as I say other things that I enjoyed enormously, but. I, full credit to Marvel because they did allow that final story to be finished and published. And rather than saying, right, you're off the book tomorrow, it was like, no, you're building up to this. Let's do this story. Uh, and I thought the Thanos Imperative worked really, really well. I enjoyed it very much. And and I couldn't definitively end the story because I because ultimately, as with everything, even though these weren't, to begin with, important toys, I still had to put the toys back in the box unbroken. Uh, having having sort of raised their profile a little bit, I had to put the characters back in a way that they could be used again because it's an ongoing self-renewing process. That's the way the Marvel Universe works. So I couldn't just kill everybody off or or marry them all off and let them drift off in the sunset happily. And I thought that was probably the best way is to leave it dramatically satisfying in a kind of suspended moment of this sort of heroic demise, this last stand, and that's the end of my story. And obviously other writers then came back and, and did things with those characters because they were available to have things done with them. But it seemed to me a, a, a quite a poetic and, and, and satisfying ending to, to my personal involvement with those, those storylines, just to, to leave it on that sort of, well, it's not a cliffhanger. It's just that it's that, it's that freeze frame, as you say, Butch and Sundance deliberate reference. It was, it was that, you know, sort of going out in a blaze of glory. Will they die? Won't they die? Well, they probably will, but we're never going to see it. And that to me had uh, had a certain satisfaction to be able to deliver that and turn that script in. Right. It, it's almost the other side of what you were talking about, about letting readers imagination fill in the backstory that now we're actually filling in the future. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, as I say, with the possible exception of Captain Marvel, you can't kill a character off in, in any comic universe and they not come back six months time when somebody else starts writing them. So, so I think I thought it would be more hollow to have done a story where they appear to die, knowing that within three or four months, somebody would have resurrected them and gone back again. So that to me, that moment of suspense, unanswered dot, dot, dot moment was much, much more satisfying to do because it allowed for whatever would follow, but still was a sort of a punctuation mark at the end of that story. And as we uh, wrap things up, Dan, I'd love to have you talk about the projects that you're currently working on that uh, our listeners can look forward to? Well, uh, you know me, I'm a very busy person. I like to write 49 million things all at once. So I, I yes, I continue to be very, very busy indeed. Uh, I have for 
the last several years been very, very, very busily working for DC Comics on long run on Titans, a long run, almost 50 issues on, on Aquaman, which I'm very proud of. So I would send readers, if they're interested in the sort of work that I do, at least to go and look at the trade collections of things like my Aquaman run for, for, for DC. And over the last few years, actually, I've been able to do cosmic work for DC by doing their Justice League Odyssey, which is a wonderful opportunity to explore cosmic heroes in, in you know, the great alternative universe. That series is, uh, is, is coming to an end, but it goes out in a bang. And again, there's a wonderful resolution to it. It's a story that reaches proper closure. It's, just not, it's not a book that just gets cancelled. It's, it's got a major story arc, all available in trade, except the last few which are coming out now. And I, I urge people, if they like my Guardian stuff, to, to go and have a look at that, because I think there's, there's a, there is a sort of commonality of, uh, of stuff going on there. I am lucky enough to be writing a book called Rye for Valiant at the moment which is, again, it's not literally cosmic because it's not in space, but wonderful people at Valiant allowed me to take the future of their universe. Almost all of their stories are set present-day contemporary, but there is one strand which features this sort of uh, synthetic samurai warrior called Rai, which is set in the year 4000 and is in a future version of the Earth. And they've given me that book to do, and it's immensely rewarding because they're allowing me to sort of build out the future of their universe. We had published... Uh, let me think, five issues by the time lockdown stopped everything. Uh, and that first five issues was a, a complete story arc, which is available as of this month. We're in August, aren't we? It, this month, that that becomes available as a trade. Uh, but they've also restarted publication. So issue six has also just come out. In fact, it's just arrived in my intray. So the, the ongoing book is coming. That's that's great. It's a very different type of SF superhero. But but again, it feeds into exactly the sort of world building that I love to do. It's been incredibly well received. People have been talking about it not just as a good comic, but as a sort of essential read, partly due to the fact that the, the art is amazing. But it's it's a serious, exciting, very imaginative, very weird story with uh, with some strong characters and some strong humour in it, actually. So, so again, if you like what I did with Nova, if you like what I did with Guardians or the Legion of Superheroes, that's something else you might want to look at. And I'd love to draw readers to it because uh, because I think it's a book deserves a big audience. So check it out. Rye First Trade is available now. Next issue, issue six, is available now. And also the trade collection of Fallen World, which was the event that I wrote that set the Rye book up, is also available. So there is, there is backstory to look at. Otherwise, I'm doing all sorts of other different bits and pieces all over the place. I'm having a blast writing Deja Thoris, the John Carter of Mars character for, for Dynamite. Those are books I loved when I was a kid. Loving doing that, uh, going back to Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and stuff that I grew up reading. Uh, I write very, very regularly for 2000 AD over here in the UK. So I'm writing several strips there and for the its sister publication, the, the Judge Dredd magazine. Uh, so there's that's the phone ringing. That's probably 2000 AD saying, publicize us harder. Publicize us harder. <laughs> yeah, no, so a lot of 2000 AD stuff. And I know that's harder to get hold of in um, America. But the 2008 is now publishing a perfect bound US format series that's coming out now called The Best of 2008, which I heartily recommend. You can get it through Diamond, your, your comic shop or your, whoever does your pull list for you. And The Best of 2008 features some classic stories from the long history of 2008, which is very, very British SF and, and, and very satirical and very wild and weird. And has got amazing art from people who've gone on to do big things in America, too. Uh, I'm also privileged that the Best of 2008 features one of my strips, which is called Brink, which is a kind of detective, procedural detective story set in space. So it's uh, best way of summing it up is sort of Outland meets True Detective, uh, mm. which is 
something I've been writing now for several years. We're on to the, the fourth series in 2018 you know, on a weekly basis. And that's been very, very well thought of. And there are trades available. And it's uh, it's great. I love doing it. It's incredibly low key. It's very talky. It's very uh, claustrophobic. And then when things happen, boy, do they happen. So that's uh, that's a series I'm very proud of. And over in the magazine, I write a, uh, I'm about to publish the 50th episode of a series called Lawless, which is set in the Judge Dredd universe, but features a female marshal. She's a female judge, but she's the marshal of a small town, which is basically a space western, which is very character driven uh, and, and often very funny, even though it's a serious story. And I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to be working with the artist Phil Winslade on it. We've written, we've done 50 monthly episodes of it, and we're about to mm-hmm. produce the 50th episode, which is a double length, quite the most stupendous and insane thing we've ever done. And that, again, has got a big readership and there are trades available that you can order. Lawless. Uh, I, I, I can recommend it again for the art alone. I can recommend it. And then when I'm not writing comics, I'm occasionally writing computer games, which I usually can't talk about because I've got an NDA, which is the case at the moment. But I also write novels, as we mentioned earlier on. Too many novels. I've written over, gosh, it's 55 novels I've written now in the last however many years. So I, I've, I have an ongoing strand of novels largely for warhammer 40k 40,000, uh and for uh the horus heresy which is one of their other big strands so so big uh operatic space opera it, just just wonderful stuff i enjoy writing it very much and this month uh my latest horus heresy novel which is part of the so-called siege of terror sequence which is the very end of this massive clone wars level foundational myth of the warhammer universe I've written uh, the latest volume of that, which is called Saturnine. It's the biggest novel I've ever written. It is stupendous grand scale, scale military SF, and that has just been published, and uh, is, I'm very, very proud of it. But, yes, I've al- already got the next one on the go, and, and there are other ones around it. The, the Warhammer people are wonderful. They're actually, last year uh, I published a big, glossy, fully illustrated sort of encyclopedia of one of my novel strands, which is full of brilliant maps and illustrations. They actually allowed me to sort of do my own supporting material for for the gaunt's go series which I, I write so i am a very busy person and 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 almost all of it has got some strong sf or military sf component so it sort of shades over from the comics where it tends to be superheroes in a cosmic environment mm-hmm. through 2008 where it tends to be sort of uh, unusual characters in a in a uh, science fiction environment right the way over to the warhammer stuff where it tends to be sort of all-out military action and uh, that's what I spend my time doing in the course of a week. I will do all of those things all at once. I will I will spend a morning doing one thing and then on the afternoon I'll shift to something else and, and then the following day I'll do something else, mainly to keep the plates all spinning to make sure I don't miss deadlines, but also because I find I'm more productive and creative that way. If I keep a lot of things on the go, I never stay in the same place twice. I never stay in the same universe for very long mm-hmm. and I never allow anything to sort of go stale or get boring because I'm off again doing whatever the next thing is. So, yes, there is... There are loads of things, but I mean, some might say too many, but loads of things out there that I'm doing. Um, check, check, check me out in the diamond listings for comics. Check me out on Amazon. It's probably a very good place to go to. Or, or the, the website of the Black Library, which is Warhammer's 40K's publishing arm. They will list all my publications. Or indeed, 2008D's website, which lists all the trades uh, for 2008D and for the magazine. There is some, not just my stuff there, that I would heartily recommend, of course, I would say that it's me, but some wonderful stuff. If American readers are not familiar with 2008 output, they are, they are in for an extraordinary treat when they start digging into the amazing stories and, and uh, extraordinary artwork that 2008 has been producing since uh, 1977. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a true institution, 
and uh, and I hope uh, I hope we can get some more readers from the US to uh, to dip into it. Well, I know I'll definitely be checking out some of those, and and I'd really like to recommend to all the listeners to to do likewise. Man, you really are you really are extremely busy. I had looked through your I had looked through your writing credits prior to this, and I'm just going, how is it he is basically the same age as I am and has all this body of work? Like I kind of feel like such a slacker. So I, I never sleep. I never sleep. It helps that I, lo- I, I appreciate the fact that I'm incredibly lucky to be doing what I'm doing because I'm doing something I absolutely love, which makes it a lot easier. I'm not saying it's never hard and that there aren't difficult days, but I just you know, always constantly sitting back and reminding myself this is, you know, this is, this is just a, a, a dream to do. Well, I know you're, you're extremely busy, Dan, and I, I do appreciate taking time to, to talk to me today. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I, I hope I've done justice to your uh, questions and not waffled on inanely, as I am so prone to do. Oh, no, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. Final thoughts. Well, that brings us to the end of this third episode of Xandar Radio. I hope you enjoyed it and look forward to receiving your feedback. Send your comments through the Xandar Radio landing page as a voice message, and it may be played in a future episode. And of course, you're always welcome to send an email to xandarradio at gmail.com or leave a post at the Xandar Radio Facebook page. I'd like to extend a very special thank you to Dan Abnett for participating in the Learn More in Studio 64 interview segment. He is a terrific person to talk to, and it was a great thrill to get to know him a little bit better. Before we go, here are the answers to this episode's trivia questions. Number one, Dr. Ralph Ryder was Rich's uncle and the brother to Rich's father, Charles Ryder. He was a gifted research scientist who had developed a transistorized nuclear device and was killed for refusing to sell the invention to Photon. Number two, Nova's original helmet gave him a 15-minute air supply. The helmet would automatically refill itself once a breathable environment was available. Number three, the name of Roman Day's wife was Carmen Can. And yes, I did have to look that one up. The next episode of Xandar Radio will be released in the first week of October with the latest Nova news, fun features, and a new Studio 64 roundtable session where we finish discussing the original Man Called Nova series, the Fantastic Four crossover, and the issue of Rom that brought Rich Rider's story to a temporary end. Until then, have a blue blazing day. This is the world mind. I am taking back control from my human host. Zunder Radio is a Studio 64 production of the Nova Prime page. This program is the property of Doug Smith. Nova and other characters mentioned are Trademarks of Marvel Characters Incorporated All rights reserved Music heard in the program is by Chad Crouch A link to his site and the license can be found at NovaPrimePage.com